virtual campfire. I'm with Benny Sack, and I'm really excited because I met Benny around a real campfire, mm -hmm. and that was um, it was it was a campfire that was very unique, and we heard a lot of close encounter stories. We heard lots of pretty far out there things. Um, I kind of found my people. I feel like. <laughs> and, <laughs> It was at the um, Seattle UFO Network SUFON, the um, July Skywatch party that they had. So that's yeah. that's where I met Benny. And um, during that weekend, I got to hear her close encounter story. And so now I'm really excited because you're going to share it with everybody. The, the first thing I saw, Crystal, was your copper pyramid, and Jason came out, and I was like, man, you really went for it. You got a copper pyramid? And he's like, oh, that's my wife's. Like, he did not want to be directly associated with the copper pyramid, which is funny, because, you know, you know he'd be doing the frou-frou. You know he's into that. Totally. And, and uh, you can't fool me, Jason. You can fool me about your age, but you can't fool me about your copper pyramid experience. Because I was worried because my um, recent experience and my recent exposure had been in the CE5 group, which works so hard on cultivating the metaphysical and the esoteric aspect of contact that I was worried that I was going to run into, you know, more of like what I was talking about where people are really fear-based. I, I definitely didn't want that. Right. So when I showed up and you're like smudging stuff and there's, I'm like, okay, okay. And then, you know, I don't want to speak too much about like the personal interactions that I had with some people because I want them to keep their anonymity if they wanted to, but the broad range of experiences that I never thought that I would meet people personally that had that level and depth of experience to share about their own personal contact felt super miraculous to me. And then that they were just such happy people, you know, doing their like Elaine Bennett dances and just like having such a goofball, wonderful experience. And then people who didn't, who didn't even know they were into it. And then they just showed up and like, oh, it turns out I am into this, you know, like, like just having that kind of like it, that convergence of like everything on top of this mountain with two, two sweet, you know, elders and their, you know, guns and their, you know, like it was fine. Like it was, it was yeah. a wonderful experience and it was nothing like what I thought it was going to be. And so much more. See, I, I had the exact same feeling. I, um, I was excited to go like, and of course I had to really convince Jason to go and, and he doesn't really like camping and this was pretty remote. And so I think that, um, you know, he clearly brought more than needed, but, um, but then I had to bring my copper pyramid, so I can't really talk about how much crap he brought because I'm bringing like crystal singing bowls and a copper pyramid there up to the top of the mountain. So it's like that's a little excessive as well. You gotta, you have it. You can bring it all. Bring everything. Totally. Like let's just fill this truck with as much stuff as we can put in it. Now let's hear Benny's first extraterrestrial encounter. So if you just want to take us back to where it was, what happened, sure. wherever you want to start. 
Okay, so um, the experience that we were talking about around the campfire was um, people were encouraged to give their like first like contact story. And um, my contact story happened the first one that I remember, right? I mean, there's kind of this thread through the community that maybe we have things that we don't remember. I was 18 years old and I grew up in central Illinois. So about halfway between Chicago and St. Louis um, and the nearest big city to where I grew up was Peoria, Illinois. It's about 180,000 people. And I went to high school there. And this story occurred on or around August 26th of 1992. So it was 18. It was my last night in Peoria before I was moving to college. I was going to, the next day, move to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois. Um, and uh, my friends, so the bulk of my friends from that year were actually juniors. And so they were going to, like, take me out. We were going to have this little clandestine, like, last night celebration around a rock quarry, which is outside of Jubilee State Park. So for so people who know the area, there's a rock quarry that may or may not still be there. I imagine there's probably still a giant hole in the ground um, near Jubilee State Park. So that is north and west of Peoria, not far from the Peoria airport. So I will say full disclosure, there is absolutely an airport out there if you want to call it that. Uh, <laughs> it's not, you know, a great airport. It's an airport. Uh, so it was nighttime. The first things first, I walked out of my job at Domino's because they didn't give me the night off. And so I was 18 years <laughs> old and I just didn't understand karma then, which I have like reaped that karma about a thousand times in my own business since then. So there you go, Domino's. I got mine. Um, I walked out because I wanted to spend time with my friends and he was supposed to let me off early and the other person didn't show up. And so I was working overtime on my last night in town and I was just like, sorry, peace out, left my shirt in the office, I'm out. So my friends came and he did tell me to go fuck myself, which was nice of him and probably appropriate. So uh, I walked out with my friends and they, so Brian drove. So I don't remember exactly what kind of car Brian had, but it was like a, like a late model car, like an older car, like kind of a junky car, but not a great car, but not also not quiet. Um, and we were, you know, we got, however they got the beer. I don't know how they got the beer. Sorry, dad, we drink. Um, and uh, we uh, drove out of town, you know, uh, on 74 and got off at the Kickapoo exit and drove north uh, towards uh, Jubilee State Park. So we're driving north on that road. It's dark. It's nighttime. Um, even in the summertime in Illinois, the sun goes down a lot earlier than it does in Washington. Crystal and I are in Washington and um, the sun stays out super late in the summertime and goes down super early in the winter. So uh, we said, you know, it was like nine o'clock ish, but it was dark out. It was like black dark. And we're rolling north up this road and we see this thing and it is just stationary. You know, as if it 
were sort of like a helicopter, but it wasn't helicopter shaped at all. And I want to say it was about 75 to 100 feet off the ground. It was close to the ground. And um, we saw it. And I said, Brian, what the fuck is that? He's like, I don't, I don't know what that is. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what that is. And we, as we roll towards it, it's not going anywhere. Like, we stop the car on the road. It's a country road. So, and it's nighttime, even in the summertime, there's probably no one coming. Right. Yeah. Just stop in the road. And my memory kind of points me like up and to the right, about a hundred feet in the air. And I said, Brian, stop, like turn off the car. So we turn off the car and we roll down the windows and we look up and we see this thing that the best way for me to describe it is it was like a floating piece of like, a, it was a wedge triangle. It's sort of from underneath looked like a thick piece of pizza with a bunch of multicolored lights underneath it. And it wasn't, you know, I know that in some circles there's a triangular craft that's uh, reverse engineered. This was not that craft. It was a floating piece of thick pizza with multicolored lights on it. And it was not making any sound at all. It didn't make so sense. That was your first Domino's um, karma that came from <laughs> the floating pizza. Domino's sent their secret space program technology to harass me on the way to Jubilee State Park. I knew they were part of the conspiracy. No, um, but we were just like, um, frozen for a minute yeah because that first time that you have a really serious hit of ontological shock you think you might poop it you're just like and then all of a sudden i snapped out of it and i was like brian we need to go we need to go right now we didn't even roll up the windows he just threw it into drive and we took off and we we're looking behind us and i remember yes go ahead Oh, I was, when you took off, were you going towards it or were you going, you know, like away from it? Away from it, for sure. We okay. were going away from the vehicle, whatever it okay. was, this silent yeah. floating thing. It did follow us, but Fran was like, it's going to follow us, it's going to follow us, keep trying. We were both, we were all like scared. <laughs> so we went to the quarry to kind of like have a what the fuck check-in and we're like shaking and drinking terrible beer out of aluminum cans and yes Fran is fully freaking out and she's like what she said was we need to make foil hat for our heads because the aliens can read our minds so and I was like I don't think they can do that can they do that I don't know like I don't think they can do that to be here right I, they didn't follow us and they did it like we did not have any more and i want to be clear that to the best of my knowledge we didn't have any like missing time incident or anything like that it, it, it was really just like we saw something really really strange that we could not explain 
that may or you know having talked to and listened to like hundreds of contactees over the years i know that some people have bookmark experiences throughout their lives um and so but this was my first uh close encounter et experience and it, you know it wasn't a third kind or anything we never saw any beings we never had any to the best of my knowledge we did not have any messages conveyed there really wasn't an energetic conveyance of any kind it was just like mm -hmm. hey, guess what? there's this weird thing we should show you this weird thing yeah oh my god there's a weird thing you know like and we and you know i don't know i don't remember if i came home and told my parents what happened i feel like i didn't tell them what happened i feel like i didn't tell anybody what happened and um to the point where when Fran and I last saw each other Christmas of 2016, I was like, Fran, did that happen? Do you, she's like, I remember it, it happened. So, you know, and you know, Fran and I are normal people. We're not on psychiatric medication. We're not, you know, like we're not like delusional folk. Like she, she's a great mom. I'm a great mom you know, like we've both held down jobs. Like this is not a crackers person. And I, I think that it gets um, sightings and, and things that involve ontological shock get played down a lot. And I, I tried to wrap my head around why people do it. And I really feel like there's two kinds of ontological shock in people. Um, and I think the first kind of ontological shock is, well, I don't know what I saw and move on. Like they just drop it like a hot potato. Like I'm never touching that subject again. I don't know what it was. Let's not talk about it. And then there's the person who is me that's like, this is whole, opened a whole new chapter of my life that I can't close ever. And that, that for me is like the the nuts and bolts of that experience for me was like it, like it was the beginning of a lifelong change that would mean that it's incapable of me seeing the world in the way that I saw it before from this day forward, the world is different to me. And I have to wonder about every interaction that I have with reality. I have similar points in my life where the, I was no longer the same person anymore. It was like I completely shifted and those those shifts um, always bring a new like insight or or dimensionality into like my thought process and um, and my healing journey and 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 I really identified with you when you said that you question like, did I really see that? Because I had a similar experience, but the thing that is a bummer is I was by myself. Mm -hmm. And so that is really hard because I'm like, did I make this up? But I, I don't believe I could have. And I'm pretty sure I, I didn't make it up. I, I think that I, I definitely came into contact with beings and I think they continue to guide me. I mean, do you feel guided in a way? Oh, yeah. It's hard for me to quantify all the ways in which serendipitous occurrences happen for me on a very regular basis. It is now a part of my daily driver. Like I, yep. 
I can't separate the esoteric from the realistic in my world anymore, nor do I choose to. And I don't, I don't try to live my life any differently than that. Ethnicities that, that you mentioned, like I used to, um, years ago, I don't do this anymore, but I used to always be like, that was so weird. I can't believe that happened. I, you know, and always like question it and stuff. And, and now like things happen and like, <laughs> I am around people that are like, Oh, we're just with Crystal. Let's just just expect that to be normal. Like, <laughs> you know, like. Me too. I love this. Um, I'm going to give a shout out to my favorite podcast of all time, Aliens and Artists. Yeah. And uh, Aliens and Artists. Okay. Oh my God, it's so good. Um, Stuart Davis, hello. Uh, and he uh, had an interviewee on just last week that was talking about, you know, the fake. It, it's not a fake disclosure. It's just kind of a snoozeville disclosure, you know. He was like, for sure. Honestly, yeah. the Tic Tac is the most boring thing that I have heard in a decade. Yeah. <laughs> like it doesn't. Like, yeah. yeah, you're seeing everything that everyone else has been telling you. They've been seeing for like ever, you know. But you just were like, you know, weather ballooning it or doing whatever it is yeah. you do with information like, you don't want us to. Right. Telling our stories, that's, I think, the most important thing that we can be doing right now mm-hmm. and Definitely. sharing it because I learn from you and then you learn from me and then whoever's listening learns and and the the story gets deeper and richer. You yeah. know, I, I noticed that um, a lot of people see things and then they have it in, the, in their subconscious, let's say, not even in their conscious mind, but it's in their subconscious and it just won't go away until that little like whisper of whatever that is in your subconscious. You have so many dreams or you keep painting pictures or you write songs on it or, you know, whatever, however you're, it's coming through you, mm-hmm. it will come through you mm-hmm. and eventually bubbles to the surface to like, to the point where you have to start talking about it. Right. To process it. Well, that was, you know, I, um, I take in a lot of information from Jacques Vallée and I don't know if you know who Jacques Vallée is, but, uh, he, you know, for people who don't know who Jacques Vallée is, if you've ever seen Close Encounters of the Fifth Kind, the French scientist in that movie is basically based off of Jacques Vallée and Jacques Vallée was one of the, um, consultants for the film, as was J. Allen Hynek, who was part of Project Blue Book, um, you know, during the late 60s, early 70s. And inherently, Jacques' biggest problem with Spielberg's treatment of the film is that it really doesn't go deeply enough into the high high strangeness of contact, because we assume and Spielberg portrayed that these are extraterrestrial beings. And they very, very well may be, and we don't fully know. Um, or some of us claim to know, and some people have contact and it, that's of a different variety. Um, personally, I don't know. But what I will say is this, after uh, reading a lot of Jacques Vallée and, and taking in a lot of his work, I would say that the chances are equally good that these are human beings from another time period or another plane of existence, that these are ascended masters that are coming to us in physical form to try to help us. There's a number of avenues that are unexpressed 
in the creation of that film, but I do deeply appreciate that they made any attempt at all to talk about people's psychic contact. And, you know, with, with the repetition of the songs, uh, with the repetition of the shape of the devil's tower, with that like inner, like, I cannot stop until I get there. Why can't these people stop? Well, they've been given a message and it's not for us. It's not for the comment. Um, Like you were saying, the repetitions help because they're remote viewing to us, you know, so we have to bring them in our minds to us. So like the, those things do help. I, you know, whether it's a song or a location, whatever you're using to call out, uh, it's gotta be really solid in our minds. Um, That's a- And it's not radio waves. (laughs) <laughs> no. P.S. It's not radio waves. You no, know, it's uh, heart waves. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are credible government resources of an anonymous nature who have been aboard craft who will tell you that it responds to thought, it responds to touch, it responds to bio and energetic feedback. It's not... Uh, it's not like a control panel on a plane with like a bunch of levers and flips and you know yes there are you know are screens but the screen responds to your thought like if you think about the moon you're going to see a picture of the moon you know like and that's it ha- it's like it hadn't occurred to us yeah that that was the way to go um and I'm not sure how I specifically come down on overt uh Uh, on whether we have been overtly separated from our consciousness or not. I think that the human experiment has to be somewhat separated from their source in order to get the experience that we need to get through the contrast. I think that is important. Um, But I also... I'm not sure about like, you know, there are folks that believe in, you know, an overarching nemesis that is about suppression. I I tend to think it's just that there are some beings that bend towards the light and there are some beings that bend towards themselves, but not in a way that self-love or self-discovery, it's they bend towards separateness. It's just like a bend towards separateness. And when the left impact, the smell of him. And when we feel separate it's just a really lonely existence and it doesn't include that unity feeling like something really does care about me and protects me it it leans towards i'm alone in this and i need to get anything out of this that i can get and and that's the only thing that works it's just and i and if i'm honest i feel like that is really inherently the problem with american exceptionalism that we're so fucking special as individuals that we don't need to do what anyone else tells us to do. And the fact is it's not about not being able to do what you want to do. In fact, if you feel more connected to people, you can be more personally expressive than you ever have been, but you're multiplying the source with that individualism as, as, a, as opposed to <clears throat> feeling alone, alone and isolated and separated. I don't know 
why Americans tend to work, 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 and barely take vacations. You know, that that is actually kind of a problem, I think, in our society, because yeah. if if you spend a little time relaxing and a little time connecting with an outside world that, you know, um, because it's really hard to connect with something of a higher power than a human or or an extraterrestrial or whatever whatever you want to call it like a god or a whatever um to connect with that you definitely have to think outside yourself you know so so it's like you know you can baby step it with traveling you can that can really be a stair step to an enlightenment about yourself yeah. you know an inner knowing yeah just something about that being able to step out of that small confined room in your mind and understand that there is at least something that's more expansive than that space. I had a sociology teacher um, in high school uh, in my small town, actually, before I transferred to Peoria. Um, his name was Mr. Suter, Daryl Suter, and he described it as the cornfield beanfield mentality. And he, you know, pretty much nailed the, nailed it on the head. Just like, you can't see past this stuff. You need to go outside and, and see what the world is like. Like you need to get, it's not that this place isn't good. You can still love this place, but it's good if you see other places too. I'm not actually sure how many people in my high school really took him up on that, but <laughs> it was my clarion call to get paroled. I'll tell you that much. Like I just... <laughs> was like yeah this this is this is not my final destination <laughs> um so uh yeah I, I i my kids are in london right now which i think is great i mean it's an english speaking country but it's different you know and it, it's different it's oh london's great yeah no that's yeah. amazing yeah, I, I'm excited for them to hear about all of their experiences, especially in this 100 degree heat where like yeah. almost no place in London has an air conditioner. And right. uh, yeah, so I'm excited to have them home to come home tomorrow. Um, and I lived so the first time that I traveled outside the country, except to go to Canada, I boarded a plane from O'Hare to Krakow to move to St. Petersburg for a year. Because my first passport was to leave this place for a year. Um, and it was really kind of a dare because there was this other girl in my program that was like, the Russian's not good enough to like study overseas for a year. I don't even know why you'd be considering it. And I, I took it personally enough to be like, challenge accepted, bitch. I'm filling out this application right now. And, um, and I did it. And I, it was that first month terrifying, like going from being what you don't recognize is a sheltered existence in a really well-established first world country to live in a kind of a one and a half bedroom apartment where you get the big bedroom the little boy is sleeping in like the closet basically next to you. And the whole rest of the family is sleeping in the living room and you have mosquitoes inside your apartment and you're eating buckwheat kasha with a hot dog in it. I was just like 
separated from myself and Hort. Thankfully, my living situation did change and I got transferred to a pretty posh, uh, like, well, posh for Russia, like uh, an apartment. Um, uh, there's a small island in St. Petersburg called Vasilyevsky Ostrov. And so I lived on Vasilyevsky Ostrov uh, with a uh, hostman named Marina Mikhailovna Jugobova, and she was like five foot one. She had a lot of gold teeth and, um, and uh, Love it. <laughs> this is a, a character. But yeah, so I lived overseas, not quite a year. So it was like two semesters, like 10 and a half months or something from August until the end of May, just a, just short of being able to see Billy Inochi, which is White Nights, where, you know, because it's so far north that in May, the sun never goes down at night for like 10 or 11 days, I think. And um, it's crazy. It's really neat. So, but I a hundred thousand percent agree that traveling outside of your comfort zone in all ways, in all aspects, is good for the human condition. Being outside of your space in any capacity, even if you're in the most comfortable place in the world, you're going to go through a forced catharsis. Or you're gonna do what the girl did in front of me that I like, got her apartment and freak out after a month and go home and be like, I can't do this. You know, like, yeah, you're going to sink or swim in that scenario. <laughs> yeah. And, but even, even if you sink, you still have so many life lessons, you know, and I'm sure life altering lessons, but sure. I also think when you can um, become uh malleable enough in your mind, like, um, where you open up to just a new way. I, I think that that's, you know, like you were able to, you know, find your place where you just kind of, you know, felt more comfortable or, or just accepted what it was that was different. It was just going to be different, you know? But I also recognize in the broad scope of history that things get darker before they get lighter. That's the nature of this matrix and that's the nature of human existence and that's the nature of the hero's journey, which we are all clearly on and playing our parts one moment at a time, you know? whatever part that is. And, you know, in different heroes' journeys in our lives, we'll have different archetypes that we inhabit. So, um, but this is, you know, this is how things go. And um, if you are focused, yes, stay focused on the present moment, but also recognize that the present moment and its very nature is transitory and this too shall pass. So... <laughs> But um, I just, I wanted to say thank you so much for your time and thank for um, uh, for all of your wisdom and, um, and everything and your stories and everything uh, is, I think, and I hope can be helpful for others too, but it was very enlightening to hear and um, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It was my extreme pleasure and a great honor to be sitting down with you at the campfire. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye. All right. Well, enjoy the rest of your day. Take care. Bye. If you have UFO sightings or close encounters that you want to share, please visit my website, crystalkelly.com and send me a message. <laughs> <laughs>